Welcome back to part two of our Ask an ID Fellow episode. As a reminder, we are here with Casey Smiley, one of our second year ID fellows. We will pick up right where we left off. However, as an FYI, you don't have to have listened to the part one to understand where we're starting. Part two of this episode is a dedicated overview of antifungal treatment. The only thing you missed from the last episode is me baiting Casey about mica coverage. So let's get right back into it. So my husband, actually, he always will say he's heard me on the phone so many times that the quote that he knows is that mycofungin only covers Canada. He actually, uh, he's not put that on a t-shirt. I know he's not in medicine at all, but that's what he knows because I think I say it so often. I think, you know, and it's understandable when someone is very ill in the ICU or they're crashing to sort of want to add, you know, empiric fungal therapy. And for a lot of us in our brains, especially in, you know, medical school residency, mycofungin sort of thought of as this kind of higher level antifungal agent. But again, mycofungin only covers Canada. Now, there are some exceptions to this, which I, you know, hate to say in a podcast because they're very ID specific. Mm. It can inhibit the growth of aspergillus, which is why we use it in a lot of our prophylaxis for our patients who are neutropenic, but it's not treatment for aspergillus. So as a medicine resident or medicine attending or even medical student, if you keep in your brain that mycofungin only covers Canada, you'll be good 99% of the time, right? So really, that's kind of the bucket when you use mica. And if you're trying to, for some reason, treat Canada in the urine, well, mycofungin doesn't actually get into the urine. So, oh no, or the or the CNS. So it's actually not a great drug, unless you have Canada somewhere like the blood, which is really that's when it's our first line, right? Which makes sense because it's not going anywhere else. So it's really not this amazing, broad antifungal that I think people think of it as. And so I think that's one of the common misconceptions is, is what we get. The rest of the azoles are sort of this black box. I think a lot of people yes. are comfortable with fluconazole. And then past that, they've sort of memorized some things for, you know, step exams or board exams, but that's about it. So really, if you think in your head that mycofungin only covers Canada, um, that will be right, like I said, 99% of the time. So then the question becomes... And, sorry, just to clarify, <laughs> and it's not just Canada albicans, right? So these are multiple Correct. species. So at Correct. least we get some more coverage yeah, so this just fluconazole, is, right? Yes. Yeah, so there are some species of Canada that are more resistant to fluconazole. One of the ones we specifically think about is Canada glabrata. At least here at Vanderbilt, those are sort of our two most common species that we see. Um, glabrata actually requires a higher dose of fluconazole at baseline, even if it is susceptible. So that's why mycofungin is actually my go-to when someone is fungemic with any Canada species before you know what it is. After you know what it is and know the fluconazole susceptibilities, or if it's albicans, you can pretty reliably go to fluconazole. But until you know that, keeping them on mycofungin is going to be a lot more broad candidal coverage for a fungemia. So we've kind of covered mycofungin and what okay. it covers. Yes. Only Canada. I feel like I say that like grasp. five times. Only Canada. So then the question becomes, you know, you're concerned about this fungal pneumonia. We'll Uh-oh. go back to That's we'll right. go back to that term. And you call me in the middle of the night and you're asking for mycofungin and I tell you that 
you know, actually micah fungin only covers candida. candida. So how worried are we really about this fungal pneumonia or disseminated disease? And again, it's really, really hard without talking about a specific patient, because if it's someone who's been neutropenic for five months and has had fevers, chills, cough, and has imaging suggestive of aspergillus, well, then I'm probably going to recommend empiric treatment with something like voriconazole, right, specific to that agent if we have a high enough clinical suspicion. But if it's someone, again, go back to sort of an HIV patient with a low CD4 count, and we're worried for a disseminated fungal infection, and they maybe have spots in their liver or other places, and we're really not sure what it is, we're actually talking about amphotericin B. Wow. So it's a big difference, right? Because if you're just very, very ill in the ICU, the empiric or the kind of the best empiric fungal treatment is actually amphotericin, which I've never had anyone take me up on starting. Surprise, I guess maybe not surprising, but <laughs> not surprising. Yeah. Most, most times people call me for MICA and I tell them that that won't cover what they're worried about. And I offer them amphotericin and they say, Oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah. Like we don't want that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of our most broad, broad. antifungal. And right? correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but that would cover candida. Aspergillus. Yes. It would cover like your endemic fungi. Exactly. And then it would cover like rare stuff like the molds Mm -hmm. and other like invasive things that could be life-threatening too. Exactly. Yeah. So there's some, I mean, there's always environmental fungi and things like that. Like certain species of Canada can be intrinsically resistant to amphotericin. There's no sort of hard and fast rule, but by far it's our most broad antifungal for things like mucor, our endemic fungi, histoblasto, aspergillus, um, all your Canada species, minus a few that occasionally aren't. But in general, you're covering sort of all of those things versus targeted treatment. Very cool. And then I know there's like some nuances with like QTC and trying to monitor other things when you do have someone that you have to kind of think about which agents are yeah. So for, you know, for mica, it's actually pretty easy to dose. So we won't go into that too much. Amphotericin, again, other than sort of being very toxic to the kidneys and poorly tolerated with a lot of side effects, it really isn't, I was going to say it isn't too terrible, but <laughs> you, you do have to monitor quite a bit, right? You need to monitor their kidney function very closely, monitor their electrolytes. A lot of the issues you have are in the kidney. And then the azoles are sort of in their own family. So I sort of, yeah, well, I sort of have mycofungin in one bucket for, you know, my candida. Mm -hmm. And then amphotericins is very much my broad antifungal. I sort of save that for my really, really sick folks. Or Mm -hmm. if I'm worried, if I really don't have a good idea as to what their pathogen is, then I go to amphotericin typically. Um, And then you have your spectrum of azoles, which are very, very different. So in my head, they sort of range from fluconazole to isobuconazole. Mm -hmm. So they have a very kind of broad spectrum of activity as well, but a lot different than your mycofungin or amphotericin. I think the one, like we said, that most people are familiar with is fluconazole, which is a great drug. You know, people give it in primary care clinic all the time. It's fairly safe. Um, Most of your azoles are going to require QT monitoring, so they can prolong the QT until we get to the last one. That's a spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) 
But yeah, so fluconazole is very safe. In general, I think of that as my azole for Canada species. So you can think of sort of mycofungin and fluconazole as sort of your first line for most candidal species, especially if you know what it is, if it's Canada albicans, or even if it's Canada glabrata and you have susceptibilities, you can pretty reliably use higher dose fluconazole. Um, and fluconazole really goes everywhere. If you think back, we also use it um, for crypto meningitis, right. right? And so it gets into the CNS. It gets into the urine. If someone by chance does actually have um, <laughs> fungal – it, it can happen. It can happen. You can get actually these fungal bowls in the kidneys. So you would need to use fluconazole, right, because mycofungin and amphotericin don't get into the kidney. So fluconazole is a good kind of overall drug for that. And it's overall well-tolerated. We have people on it for long periods of time, but it's not getting you that sort of broader activity against your dimorphic fungi, aspergillus, right? Obviously not mucor, um, nothing like that. So it's really very focused on mostly yeast. So candida, mm. crypto, that sort of thing is really what we're talking about. And I remember you saying that in terms of bioavailability, PO is basically equivalent to IV in mm -hmm. terms of most of the azoles or yeah. all the azoles? And there are a couple um, – fluconazole, we really don't need to monitor levels. Um, all of the azoles have excellent bioavailability. Some of them you do need to monitor levels. Um, and so that, I guess, is important to know because you change the dose based on what their level is. That kind of brings us into one of those is itraconazole. And that's complicated sort of by the route of administration because the oral um, comes either in pills or a liquid. There's actually a new sort of more extended release that's more expensive, but it's easier to dose. So the absorption can vary a little bit, but you monitor for levels of something like itraconazole. Again, when we're talking about fluconazole or itraconazole, these are not the start them when the patient's crashing, right? So these are usually either outpatients or before they leave the hospital once you've made a diagnosis. And itraconazole is our sort of dimorphic fungi drug of choice, right? So that's where it is in that bucket in my brain. I think it was Brian Grebe who used to always talk about sort of buckets of how he how he <laughs> thought about things. And so, you know, your Canada bucket with mica and fluconazole. Um, but again, really, once you get past fluconazole, most of these agents are still going to cover candida. In general, it's pretty wimpy. Um, but itraconazole is fairly specific for your dimorphic fungi. So it's not going to cover, you know, aspergillus or anything like that. It's not going to cover mucor, but it is going to cover histo, blasto. Um, and it's usually fairly well tolerated for the amount of time that you're going to need to treat those. So usually at least a year. Wow. And then I'm trying to think of the other azoles I know. There's a posiconazole. Yeah. I do know. Yeah. Is that coming up? It's coming up. Okay. It's coming up. Yeah. The only other thing I'll say about itraconazole that's sort of unique to it is that it can actually induce heart failure in folks. And it is reversible. But if for some chance maybe you're a rural doc somewhere and you don't have ID or you do and you see someone in primary care clinic with new heart failure and they tell you that they were just started on itraconazole, stop the itraconazole. <laughs> And then their symptoms should get better. So it's not a permanent thing. It is reversible, but something to look out for. And again, monitoring the QT and the levels in the blood as well. Yeah. The next one in my brain is actually Voriconazole. Ah. Nice. <laughs> is that your favorite? Yeah. Yeah. It has the coolest name, I think. Vori. It does. Cool. It does. And Vori, I sort of think about as obviously aspergillus. 
it's sort of in that bucket, mm. right? So we went from sort of the di- uh, Canada dimorphics. Now this is our drug of choice for aspergillus. But again, it also covers Canada and it also covers our dimorphics. So if someone's not tolerating itraconazole, voriconazole is an option. The thing about vori is it has the most drug interactions, like more so than fluconazole or itraconazole. Wow. It's like terrible for drug interactions and it gets into our brain fantastically, um, which also means, (laughs) which also means some side effects. So things like hallucinations, agitation, vision changes. So that's sort of how I think about that. So the levels also need to be monitored. But realistically, you can usually tell if someone's too high because they're having some uh, CNS side effects. It is not my favorite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and again, same thing with Probably QT prolongation. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. getting paged about, can we renew the restraints? <laughs> yeah. Yes. So yeah, so kind of the CNS side effects, drug interactions, but it works great for aspergillus. So that's kind of your drug of choice there. But again, QT prolongation is an issue and you're not getting coverage of things like mucor. Mucor scares me. Yeah. Just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings us again, kind of going up the list, right? We've kind of gained more and more coverage as we go. You really lose very little as you move up with the azole. So unlike, you know, a lot of people learn the cephalosporins, like the higher you get, the more gram negative coverage, which really isn't true especially now with fifth generation cephalosporins, it's really not true. But anyway, with azoles, the higher you get, really the more coverage you actually get. You really lose very little. So the next one is posaconazole. Oh, here we go. Yes. (laughs) So this is one of kind of our newer azoles. And this really has very, very broad coverage, really almost to the level of amphotericin. Um, The issue with posaconazole is that it's not sort of that, you know, someone's very ill, rapid start. It does take a little while to get to therapeutic levels and you have to monitor their levels very closely. Again, same thing with QT prolongation, but here you actually get coverage of sort of all the things we already talked about. Now we're also covering mucor. So a lot of times this is our prophylactic choice for folks who are neutropenic for long periods of time because it's a pill. They can take it as an outpatient. If they have a port, it's going to protect them from candida, the dimorphic fungi, aspergillus, and mucor. So it's very, very, very broad. And I say this because this is important to know because if someone comes in and they're on posaconazole, number one, get a level, right? Make sure that they're therapeutic on it. But if you were to switch them to something like fluconazole or itraconazole, you're actually losing coverage, right? If you switch them to mycofungin, you're losing coverage. So it's important to know what coverage they're already on. And again, if they're already on posaconazole and they're therapeutic, their chance of having a new fungal pneumonia, as we say, is very, very low, right? That's why we trend 1,3-beta-D-glucan right? <laughs> every day. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> we send one out every day. No. Comes back weeks later. No. But no, it is very, very broad. It's a great antifungal. Again, it's not the one that you start when someone's crashing in the ICU because you don't, can't reliably know the level. But for sort of the longer term treatment or if someone isn't tolerating one of the sort of other azoles, you can definitely switch them to the posaconazole. And then the last one, isobuconazole. Again, posa we still said with QT, still an issue. But really otherwise, usually it's well tolerated. Isobuconazole is really fun. That's sort of our – it's Crescemba. Crescemba. That's the brand name. I know I try to use the generics. 
But this is our sort of newest azol. And really, this is the one that I think of most similarly to amphotericin. So it's sort of in a similar place with posaconazole, but it actually is a little bit more reliable with dosing. You don't need to monitor levels. So really, once you start it, it should kick in, as they say, very quickly. It also covers sort of all the same things, mucor, candida, your dimorphic, aspergillus. It's covering all of those. It's one of our bigger guns. It's very expensive. Mm. So same thing with a lot of our other azoles. It can be IV or PO, but really PO is going to be cheaper and preferred majority of the time. Um, and it's going to be the same effectiveness, right? So again, this is restricted <laughs> by ID because we really want to make sure that we're using it when we need it. Right. But in people who maybe were stepped down from amphotericin or were really worried about some sort of fungal infection, they're very sick, and we don't think that they'll be able to handle amphotericin. This is usually the drug we choose. Or if they've failed treatment with something like posaconazole, we typically don't use this for prophylaxis longer term, but theoretically it'd be covering the same things. So that's sort of our, our big hitter. The other reason we might use isobuconazole or crisemba, anyone? Oh, is this QT? Yes. Someone has a prolonged QT yes. and switch them? It actually shortens the QT. Oh, so it. not only does it, you know, not interfere with the QT, no, it actually shortens it's good it. good torsades treatment. <laughs> yeah, just give them some. That's another indication. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's the other sort of fun thing. I feel like that's a good pimping question oh, very often great. is – you know, someone has a prolonged QT on really any of the other azoles. This is the only one you can use that will actually shorten the QT. So I know that was a lot of me talking, but that's sort of how I think about all the azoles in my head. I wish it was always taught that way because I feel like it's not taught sort of on the spectrum that no. it is. You make it sound a lot simpler than it mm -hmm. seems when you're visualizing it. Thinking about it on a spectrum from basically your candidas mm -hmm. to your mucor aspergillus. Yeah. And really the hard part about fungal infections is diagnosis, yeah. um, really because we don't have great reliable tests. And even if, you know, serum antigens are negative, that doesn't rule out infection. And that's where our palm friends come in. Um, so a lot of times oh, we'll be like, dear, it'll be yeah, <laughs> we'll be like, in let's get some tissue and confirm this diagnosis. Right. You can't always do that, I know. But a lot of times that's what we push for because once we know the organism, treatment is fairly straightforward. I say fairly because obviously, you know, Things can happen, QT prolongation, that sort of thing. But in general, once we know what we're treating, we have some options. Casey, thank you so much. This has been super helpful. I wish I could repeat intern years so I could have saved all these pages, but <laughs> alas, uh, I cannot. But do you think you could give us a, a few quick summary points for our listeners so uh, we have some good pearls to take away from this talk? Of course. I would be happy to. Things I feel very strongly about – so asymptomatic bacteria do not treat unless it's one of those special populations we talked about, pregnancy, upcoming urologic procedure, recent kidney transplant. That's one of them. Sputum cultures, know why you're getting them when you get them. Sputum cultures, trash. <laughs> I didn't say it like that, but um, a lot of times, yes. Know your risk factors for staph epi in blood cultures and when we actually need to be worried about it and when it's more likely a contaminant. And then, you know, for fungal pneumonias, talking about our azoles, first, thinking about mycofungin only covers candida. I'll say that like five times. Mycofungin only covers candida. And, and then, That's right. <laughs> but when we're worried about someone who's very, very sick from some sort of disseminated fungal infection or requiring ICU level care, usually we're talking about amphotericin. For our azole, 
azoles. Fluconazole is sort of our candida azole. For glabrata, you do need to increase the dose to 800 to actually treat it. Itra is for our dimorphic fungi. Voriconazole is our drug of choice for aspergillus. Posaconazole and isobuconazole are sort of our higher generation azoles that actually add coverage for sort of all the things we already talked about plus mucor. So a lot of times they're used in our transplant populations or those with hematologic malignancies. So I know that was a lot of a lot of words, but I think those are sort of some of the key takeaways. And then obviously, if you're putting in a consult or if you're reaching out to a fellow in any area, make sure you've talked to the patient, make sure you've examined the patient. Um, those are always very, very important. And then try to have a plan in mind when you talk to the fellow because it makes it a better conversation. And a lot of times it turns it into, again, more of a conversation versus that consultant team's telling you what to do. Casey, thank you so much. I do feel a lot smarter after I get to hear you <laughs> talk about infectious diseases. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Of course. I'm excited to be back. And good luck. Thank you both.